to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So today I am with my friend Kim Paulus and I met Kim via internal family systems training and I'm so excited uh, to just have this conversation. Kim, uh, would you please introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, Tasha, I'm so glad to be here with you. Yeah, I'm Kim Paulus. I am, I always like to list off all my identities. I feel like it's kind of helps kind of locate me in our culture. So I'm queer, biracial, cisgender woman. Um, I am a Vietnamese and German descent. I'm the daughter of two immigrants, first generation child daughter of immigrants. I'm a psychotherapist in private practice here in Oakland, California, the um, formerly presently known Ohlone land. I am an IFS therapist and I work primarily, most of my clients are folks who um, identify as both LGBTQ and BIPOC. So I work with folks who are at the intersection of those two identities. You know, I really was excited to talk to you. One, because I just thought about all the amazing IFS uh, therapists that I'm in community with. I wanted an episode that really explored IFS plus its use with the queer community, the BIPOC community. And so I just felt like you kind of checked off all of those really important topics and you named like your identity. And I'm just wondering in what ways would you say uh, your identity or you can, you can name certain parts that developed because of your identity and your experience as first gen. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, I have so many parts that developed as that, that I've, I've, you know, come to know over the years, you know, I've been doing IFS therapy for, I did my level one training in 2004. um, And I was really lucky that I did it uh, during my second year of my graduate program to become a therapist. And so kind of my entire clinical understanding has always been informed by IFS. And, and so in my own experience as a therapist and as a person and doing my own healing, I've been able to start getting to know my parts a long time ago. And one of the ones I really recognized first that um, was one of those first layers of work we do in therapy, I think is this, the part of me that um, has really always felt like I've got to figure things out on my own, that nobody's going to help me. I got to figure it out on my own. And that was very much born out of being this first generation kid of immigrants. Like my mom is from Vietnam. She learned to read and speak English. I think just by watching Sesame street with me when I was a toddler. Um, and my mom is hella smart and taught herself to speak English from there and from watching like cooking shows to learn how to cook white people food for my German dad. Right. And they both came here in their twenties at different, different times. My dad was much older than my mom, but, and just kind of had to figure it out for themselves and figure out like how to navigate school systems in America and navigate like being a parent to an American kid. And so there was a lot of times when like, they wouldn't know like how to help me with my homework. They didn't know how to help me navigate social situations in in an American school, all that stuff. And so there was a lot of this sense of like, oh, I got to figure this out on my own. 
And so I've gotten really good at that. And, and there have been times, you know, when that part is at its most activated and it's at its, you know, if I would say it's worst, it's anxious and it's um, a little controlling and all that stuff. But, you know, when it is kind of in its most relaxed state and can offer me the resources, it's like super assertive. It helps me be really assertive and helps me be really kind of innovative and curious about how things work and, and how to figure out how to make that happen. If you have a, a part that feels like, okay, I got to do it all on my own. Then my brain went to, then there's probably a part for me that, that would mean fear of asking or not asking for help or feeling mm-hmm. like you can't ask for help. And I was telling somebody earlier, I am at a place where I'm not used to asking people because I had a part that I always felt like, well, you can't help me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> You're not gonna have one. I, so I do have to figure, I don't know. Does that, does that make sense, Kim? Totally. Yeah. I mean, cause it's yeah. like, why should I ask? I'm just gonna be disappointed. You're not gonna be able to Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, being a queer woman and, and, and then also speaking to you and, and us being in community together, uh, I'm also interested to know from a queer perspective, but I'm also wondering how do people in the queer community, how do they find their people? How do they find community? What, what does that mean for, for, for us, for, you know, for the collective? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh God, it's such an interesting question. Cause I'm remembering how I did it, you know, when I was first coming out in my early twenties and it was like going to the queer groups on the campus of the university and, um, you know, and in, in the way so many of us found community when we were younger, like going to the, to the gay bars, going mm-hmm. to the drag shows, um, going to all the, you know, and, and witnessing and being part of all the amazing culture and art and creativity that comes out of the queer community. Um, for a lot of folks, it's going to political stuff. You know, I think I find so many of us have a more of a political awareness and, and activism. So it's, it's getting involved in those kinds of things. I've always said, like, you just go and do the things that you like to do. And so I remember going to feminist bookstores and that's where I met people who were like me. Like that's the first woman I ever fell in love with. I met her at a feminist bookstore. So I just want you to know that naming, um, naming that you went to a a feminist bookstore. I I have a part that's so jealous of that experience. (laughs) Yeah. I've been really lucky to be in places where, you know, there was this awareness of, you know, women need spaces, queers need spaces, and we got to, and they're not always going to be given to us. So we got to create them for ourselves. And I think, you know, going back to finding community, sometimes people will say, well, you know, how do you meet friends? How do you meet people? And you just really said one of the things, go and do the things that you love to do. And then if you're queer, I think it helps to kind of just ask around where are the mm-hmm. queer neighborhoods, where do queer people hang out? That's right. Um, and and self-identifying, hey, I, if you can, if it feels safe to do so, identifying this is who I am, because then mm-hmm. it allows somebody else to say, oh, so am I. And then that's right. That's how it happens. <laughs> you know, if it, and, you, and, it's, and that's what you said, like it, if it feels safe to do so. You know, I feel really privileged to live in a part of the country where I feel really safe being very open about who I am. And I know that's not the case everywhere. So, and that, that does make it harder if you've got to, for safety reasons, for whatever reasons, to be more stealthy about who you are. It does make, it's, it's an isolating experience. Uh, One of the things that I also thought about is uh, for BIPOC and queer people um, who want to, who are, you know, out and want to have a more authentic life. 
Mm-hmm. Kim, what does that, what does that look like? You know, just, mm. you know, to just say, well, this is, here's a couple of things that, that you should do if you want to have, you know, live that more authentic way, you know, any ideas? You know, one of the things that I really love about queerness, and there's this quote that, um, I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it's one of my favorite quotes by this Vietnamese, queer Vietnamese writer named Ocean Vuong that, you know, queerness is seen as a deficit, but it really saved my life. It, it forced me to be innovative, create, basically the, the effect was like to create the life that I wanted. So I, I feel like that is one of the things about being queer is, a, is the sense that like, we don't fit into what mainstream world expects of us. And we're actually really cool with that. Like I may not be accepted. I may not want to have a family in the same way other people have family. I may make a family differently than other people make family. I may express my gender differently than what people are used to. So there is no expectation that I'm going to fit into what the mainstream world says I should look like. So that gives me this permission to create for myself what's actually right. If I don't, if I can let go of needing to fit into what the world thinks I should be, then I have this amazing potential to, to figure out what do I want my life to look like? If I don't have to fit into this thing, then I get to make whatever the fuck I want. So that's, I think, one of the most beautiful things about queerness and queerness with brown folks in particular. You know, it's not easy to you know, maintain the regular connections with family. Sometimes they don't understand at the same time, that is a really painful, painful, painful experience. It also just opens up these possibilities that we get to create the world that we want it to be. And that's what I see happening. That's so beautiful. You know, and as you were talking, especially about the Brown queer experience, I really believe that in order for, for Brown and black people and queer people, uh, Brown and black queer people to heal, that one of the things that we have to let go of, and that's this expectation or this pressure to fit in into mainstream (laughs) respectability, acceptability, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, This standard that mainstream America, and by mainstream, I do mean white supremacist America. That's right. right. (laughs) um, Just accept that you will never, we will never fit into that. We were never meant to fit into that. That's right. And then once you start, like you said, creating the life that you want to live, create your own meaning, your own definition, whatever you want to call it, create that. That's how you live a more authentic life. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's one of the questions I ask my clients a lot, particularly, you know, those of us who come from immigrant families where there is expectation around how you're going to show up for your family. And for some people that it works that way because they may be able to get support from their family. And so it feels better to show up in the way that family may expect in terms of like, you know, your duties as a child. And so one of the things I talk to folks about is, you know, your parents may never accept you in the way that you are. And so what does it mean to you to be a good daughter or a good son or a good child? Like, how do you define that for yourself so that when you are showing up, as long as you are in alignment with your own values of what it means to be good, whatever that means, then that's when you know you're doing okay. If you're in alignment with your own values, if you can let go of the expectations of of what your family's values may be. That's, I mean, such a beautiful question. What does it mean to you? Yeah, they may not understand you. They may not understand your career choices. They may not understand your gender identity, your sexuality, um, or anything that you decide to do regarding, you know, how you run your life, how you live your life. 
but what does it mean to you where they might criticize you for not, for being a disappointment? Mm-hmm. Well, you can reject that if yeah. you know, you can reject that. And so what does it mean <laughs> to, to, to be a good daughter, a good son, a good person? What does it mean to you? And that might mean as, you know, just in thinking about that question that I'm still going to love and respect you no matter what. That's right. And or, I'm going to show up for you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still going to show up. I'm still available. Like I'm here. You know, and, mm-hmm. and so, or, or whatever responsibilities I have, maybe if I can, I'll still do those things because mm-hmm. that might mean being a good daughter mm-hmm. um, or, or, or a good person, you know, in the family or whatever. But I also think that that's so much of that is taking your power back, you know, in those that's instances, right. you know, cause I really had to figure that out for myself. Yeah. What does it mean to me to be a good daughter? Cause I was, you know, I'm never going to be a good, thin, heterosexual Mm-hmm. Vietnamese girl that my mom might wish I had been. That's just never going to be who I am. And mm-hmm. so I'm not going to get that approval. So I got to in that way from her. And so I got to figure out like, how do I make myself proud? Yeah, that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, was that a long journey for you or did you recognize that pretty quickly? I mean, it was a pretty long journey. You know, I think I started therapy for the first time when I was like 20 you know, I'm going to be 50 next year. It took me a while. It took me a while to get to that place of being like, you know what? I can't like, if I keep trying to, to please her, it's going to make, I'm going to have to be somebody that I don't want to be. There's a lot of, there was a lot of loss and grief in that of like having to accept that like I was not going to get what I wanted, what I hoped for. Um, so I had to grieve wanting that. And it's not that it's all, things are always easy with my mom now. They're not, but you know, I can show up in relationship differently. And we, you know, sometimes we have these expectations of, of the pam- the people that we love, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's that they, we want them to understand us, we want them to accept us. How do we learn to kind of balance that expectation of those who disagree with our lifestyle, with our identity? Um, what does that look like for us? I mean, it was so interesting when I was thinking about this question of like folks who disagree with their lifestyle and our identity. And I think, you know, I hear that and I'm kind of like, you know, what does that mean for you to disagree with my identity? Like I am who I am. You can, you know, what does it mean to you to disagree with my identity? You're going to tell me that I'm not who, who I believe that I am. Right. So it's holding to that. I think it's needing to be really clear on who you are and what's important to you and recognizing that other people's opinions are other people's opinions. Right. And you know, when I'm feeling strong and good, I can say other people's opinions are none of my business. You know, what they think of me is not my concern. You know, I feel also, again, when I'm feeling good, I can have compassion for folks that they, that they might feel confused. They might feel lost. They might feel pushed aside by my not aligning with them and my beliefs within the family. You know, I have compassion for the confusion in that and I want to be able to show up as I am. That's become more and more important to me as I've gotten older. Like I got to be who I am. I've spent a lot of years trying to mold myself to get approval from folks and it never worked. So I was ready to let that go. So, you know, when I think of balancing the, you know, when people don't agree with our identity and our lifestyle, I really do a lot of focusing on, you know, kind of the stuff, some of the stuff we talked about that, like, we're not going to fit into mainstream Um, So I'm not going to expect that people are going to accept that I'm not fitting in that mold. What I can hope and what I can talk to them about and what I can show is that, you know, we don't all have to be the same. 
and that there's such value and beauty and difference and different different kinds of people coming together. And there's no right or wrong way to be a person. You know, there's no right or wrong way to have a body. There's no right or wrong way to be a person. You get to have your way and I get to have my way and we still get to live next to each other. I love that there's no right or wrong way to be a person. I love that. Um, I think that you should put that in your next book or you've you know, <laughs> written a book before, um, but that needs to be somewhere. Yeah. So the other thing I was thinking about is in terms of managing the expectations. I think that when we, when we have these relationships with people who have strong opinions about our gender identity and sexuality, um, they, they, they have a right to, to have that. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but also in releasing the expectation, I, I think that's important. And sometimes I'll tell my clients, you know, you don't get to control their expectations. That's right. So when you, whether it's, you know, coming out or having discussions over, you know, holiday dinner, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever, if that conversation is, is coming up over there, you know, they're bringing that tension and, and you want to talk about it. You don't get to, to control how they respond or That's what right. they say. It is hurtful. It is hurtful. In those moments, is it okay to just tend to your heart knowing that you have no control? That's right. Releasing that expectation that they're going to change, that they're going to see you as fully human and not just, you know, from one part of, oh, this is how you identify, Mm -hmm. you know, can you just tend to your own heart and think about what do I need to, to accept myself? Yes. To love myself, to give myself what I need, because I'm probably not going to get it from them. Not right now, at least, you know, that's right. That's right. So anyhow, but that's just kind of a conversation that I have with my clients. Just, we have to just release yeah. our expectations that, that they need to respond or treat us a certain way, because that's just, we don't know that that's ever going to change or happen. That's right. We yeah. cannot control the way that they respond. They can't, we cannot control their expectations. We can only control how we respond to that and how we take care of ourselves that's in that. Right. And it's such a loving thing to do, to to recognize it's such a, I think it's just such a loving thing to do for ourselves to recognize I'm not going to be able to get the acceptance and the love from that person. They don't have the capacity to give it to me in the way that I deserve. That doesn't mean that I have to contort myself to get that from them. It just means they can't do it. And so I can release that expectation for myself. It's such a loving thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to also ask about, you know, in IFS, they talk a lot about like legacy burdens. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to working with queer um, people of color and, and we're wanting to connect with our ancestors or do any kind of ancestral or generational trauma, mm-hmm. uh, can you talk about how you identify ancestors and, and how they, you know, I know you, I've heard you say that they may or may not be blood related. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think that with, Within queer communities, especially, and, you know, in the communities that I, that I'm in here in the Bay, there's like so much, and in other parts of the country, there's, it's the way that we create family is different. You know, we, we may or may not still have connection to our blood family. When we don't, even when we do, we find other ways to make families, to make family together now. Um, And to me is like family, family are people that you can count on. And family are people that you um, create this sense of community and interdependence with this sense of, you know, we love and care about each other and we will take care of each other, whether we are blood related or not. 
you know, queers make children differently than, than heterosexual people do. And so, you know, there's family connection that is not necessarily blood related. There's ancestors that we have that are people who have come before us and have lived some of the same struggle that we have that may not be blood related, but they're people that we learn from anyways. And I'm thinking of, you know, bell hooks who just passed into the ancestral world and the, the wisdom that I have taken from her words and her work over the years. Like she is an ancestor of mine, you know, we never met and I never, and you know, we're not related, but I will hold her in my ancestral line as someone who, who inspired me and taught me you know, other people who came before us, Marsha P. Johnson, James Baldwin, all of these amazing queer people who, you know, we're not related, but I have learned from them and they have paved, they have paved ways for me to grow and exist in my queer identity. And so when I'm doing ancestral work, like, and I'm calling in the support of my ancestors, I'm calling these people in um, and calling in the, the gifts, the legacy gifts that they are offering to me and hoping that healing some of my um, burdens that I carry, that that healing gets passed up the ancestral line to them as well. I think that that's really beautiful, um, especially for people who maybe you don't know who your family is, mm-hmm. or you, like, you know, we talked about before you, you may not have family, you know, in the traditional or mm-hmm. biological sense. And maybe you were adopted. Or, yeah, right. Especially yeah. in the case of, of, of adoption. Um, and even estrangement, you know, and so, um, but, but expanding the definition of family is so important. Okay. And, and, and I don't think that, that many of us in the queer community could exist or, and you really don't even have to be queer for this next statement, but if we didn't have other family, if that's we right. didn't have other close friends and people who raised us that's right. and even just hearing you, I, I was thinking, how beautiful would it be? Um, if we could think about who do we want in the room, who are we calling out for you know, in yeah. terms of support and, and to stand with us. And for me, it would be a Toni Morrison and it would be bell hooks. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so, and so many others. So I'm just thinking you can call in people that, that you feel like there's a connection or people that you looked up to, or we can extend that. That's right. You can call in the power of anybody that you want for, for that support. So that's right. I mean, I just, I, I think just what's coming to mind for me right now is like energetic connection is so much more complex and uh, spacious than just biological connection. It is spiritual connection right. is so much more broad than just biological connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm even thinking about, I'm not sure of, you know, if you do any work or if you're connected at all, like in the, in the plant medicine community, but all of that, you know, those indigenous practices are all mm-hmm. about connecting with your ancestors. That's right. And one of my concerns early on was, well, I don't, I don't know my family. I don't, you know, what, what do I do? So it's so helpful for anybody out there, your ancestors, they're not always biological. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so don't, please don't let that stop you or prevent you from doing the work or, you know, any fears, like, you know, maybe thinking that you're excluded from that, you know, ancestral work, that indigenous work. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, I could talk about that forever. <laughs> um, so, you know, going back to your own identity, um, how important is it in the work that you do with clients um, in the work of, you know, 
I guess, helping them, you know, with legacy burdens, to release legacy burdens. How important is it to name whiteness or to name even white supremacy in the, in the work that you do? Oh, my God. It's so important. I name it all the time. I feel like mm-hmm. I was just telling somebody the other day, like, it's so good to end the day on a, on a session where, you know, I'm just using the phrase and that's just some white supremacist bullshit, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, because uh-huh. it's so important to name the forces that we are steeping in in this society of the, the things that affect us that we may not recognize. You know, this isn't just childhood trauma. This isn't just things that happen directly to me, but I'm steeping in this in these expectations of white supremacy. And so when I feel like, God, if I just worked, I'm so lazy. If I just worked hard enough, then I'd be getting ahead in my job or I would be recognized to be able to name. It's not just that you're, it's not that you're not working hard enough. That is what white supremacy tells you that you have to do things on your own and you have to do things perfectly in order to be valid in this world, like that's just a white supremacist message, or you need to work. You need to look a certain way. Your body needs to look a certain way. Your skin needs to look a certain way. Your hair needs to look a certain way in order for you to be accepted. And we take on these messages. There's just something wrong with us when it's not that there's something wrong with us. It's that white supremacy tells us that and it's bullshit. I just feel like it's so it can, we take on so many burdens of something being wrong with us or us not doing it right. Or us not being enough that our families took on and passed down to us as well. Um, And when we can recognize that these are forces outside of us that impact how we feel inside, but they're not our fault. That's just so much more freeing. So I name it all the time. I think you have to. And I don't think you can be a good mental health professional and not name white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. That's right. Even with your white clients, even with your, yeah. With everybody. With everybody. Because that is the root of so much. Yes. um, Of the issues, those, those three things plus trauma. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I can't think of any issue that somebody's dealing with where white supremacy isn't in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I so agree with you. Uh, and so uh, can you speak to some common legacy burdens that mm-hmm. that you explore within the BIPOC queer community? Yeah, I was thinking about this. And I think, you know, one of these, the big ones, and I think I've spoken to this a little bit already today, was like the this legacy burden of heteronormal heteronormativity, right? Mm-hmm. That like being heterosexual in a monogamous male female relationship is the only thing that is normal and valid mm-hmm. and it is the thing against which everything else is measured. Mm-hmm. How close can you get to something like that in order to be accepted? You know, and so so many folks I know have had to really examine and work towards releasing this expectation that they are going to fit into, they're going to find some way to fit into this mold. Like, you know, so many times, and I, I hear folks in the LGBTQ community being like, you know, we're just like everybody else. We have families and we have babies and we pay taxes and we do all this stuff. And like, we're just like everybody else. So you have to love us because we're just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I can appreciate the resource that assimilation provides for people. Um, the sense of safety that assimilation can provide for people. And I think I just hope for a world 
And I see this happening. I hope for a continued building of a world where difference, we don't have to look a certain way in order to, to feel like our lives are valid or acceptable. Um, and so that's a big one. This, this sense of heteronormativity, that this is the only way we're going to be accepted or be valid as if we are fitting into this mold. That's a really big one. And I was even thinking about with my clients are predominantly black people mm-hmm. and what often comes up uh, for them around legacy burdens is God shame. Like, um, mm-hmm. you, you know, we, we were taught that, that if you're gay, you know, that that's a sin and, mm-hmm. um, and that you're going to hell and then, yeah. Then, yeah. And so often that has been passed down so much yeah. that the, you know, some of the, the, the gay people that I work with or queer people that I work with, it's this feeling of, well, well, I'm never going to be accepted by God. Mm. No, no, no. Where, where did that come from? Yep. That's right. Where'd you learn that? And, 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 we're, and we're tracing that and, and having to say, well, that's, you're no surprise who you are. Mm-hmm. You were born to be this person. Yep. That's no surprise. And, and just breaking all of that down. And it's like, it's so hurtful that you, you know, and, and, and so unfortunate that you have people that where it's gone generations. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't stopped earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so anyhow, but yeah, that's, that's one of the common kind of legacy burdens that, that, that I see. What are your thoughts on how people find their voice? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, is, you know, is some stuff that we talked about already around like finding community. You got to find your people. You got to find your people who, who look like you, who love like you. Cause when you are the only one who is speaking a truth, it's really hard to do that by yourself and to not have that truth be mirrored back to you of somebody being like, Oh yeah, you're right. I feel exactly the same way. Cause when you have enough people around you being like, Oh yeah, thank you for putting that to words. I feel the same way. When you have more people like that, then you can speak that truth to folks who may not immediately agree with you because you're able to just like integrate this awareness of like, this is right for me because I've been validated. And now I can speak this out to people who may not be so ready to validate it, but it can still be true for me. That's so important. And just having people to affirm you because, you know, if you're, if you're worried about finding, or if you're worried about saying something, or if you're worried about, you know, what happens when you make your own decisions, when you have the autonomy that you're looking for, Mm -hmm. one of the fears that often comes up is, you know, boil all of it down. Like, okay, what would happen if like, mm-hmm. you know, this question that we ask in IFS, well, I'm afraid that they won't love me, or I'm afraid they won't talk to me, or I'm afraid basically that they're, that they're going to abandon me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you have support in other places, that's right. Then that fear loses a lot of steam, a lot of power. That's right. I mean, it's still going to be painful if it, you lose these will. people that's real. Yeah. And you also will have these other people who yeah. will step in. That's it. You're not going to be alone if you lose these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the anxiety will still be there. That's right. um, but at least if you have, you know, if you're in community, even with one or two others, mm-hmm. it really helps you to, to get through anything and to be able to stand in, in, in ways that you may not have been able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. What do you know for sure about what it means to speak your truth? Mm. What I know for sure by speaking my truth is that it is scary as shit and almost always worth it. Almost always worth it. 
That is so true. If you're listening to music and you really want a kind of a pick-me-upper for the day, mm-hmm. what kind of music are you listening to? I'm like these days I'm listening to um Lizzo mm-hmm. and I'm listening to a lot of Britney Howard, Alabama, Alabama Shakes. Um, love Britney, love her. I know she's yeah. so good. She is. I'm listening to you know, some of the old school nineties dance music that gets me moving. You know, I'm like, was baby Dyke in the nineties, listened to lots of like lesbian folk singers and, you know, that still touches my heart. So I'm listening to like Toshi Regan. I'm listening to Dar Williams. I'm listening to little sweet honey in the rock. And that stuff just always makes me feel good. It makes my heart open. Yeah. The taste of music. Thank you. So, okay, here's something. Yeah. When I attended level one IFS earlier this year, Uh you stuck out to me because you were dancing. Yeah. Our little, um, what do you call energizers or Uh uh all that? Yeah. And, and so they playing this music and I was like, how is it that some people, and there was, it wasn't just you, but you did stick out to me that they can dance so freely in front of others. And I dance not so free. Like it takes a lot for me to dance in front of somebody. I consider myself maybe a private dancer and I don't know where, (laughs) and I'm a good dancer. I'm a really good dancer. But when I'm in front of people, I freeze up. Like I, I can't move. And so just, you didn't know, you never knew this, but that is why you stuck out to me because I had a part that was like, and my screen was off. You were dancing. My screen was off. And I was like, I hope I have that courage one day, whatever. And I don't know that it's courage, but I hope whatever that is that allows people to be free. I hope I have that. So anyhow. Oh, I yeah. love hearing that, Tasha. I had no yeah. idea. Yeah. I love dancing because, you know, what was so fun about that experience for me was, it's, you know, we're all in our little boxes, mm-hmm. but we're all dancing to the same song in our spaces. Yes. And I got to feel connected mm-hmm. to everybody there. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's what felt so good for me is, you know, being on screen and seeing other people dance. There was mm-hmm. times when I like Tamla and I were like dancing with each other mm-hmm. across, you know, so that's what helped me be so free is the dancing is like such a connective experience yeah. for me. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. So who or what makes you laugh? Uh, well, you make me laugh. You know, I laugh at everything. Mm-hmm. It's true. Like my partner is like, you are the best for my ego because you laugh at all of my jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love sarcasm. I like good, edgy, dark humor. I like dumb dad jokes. And I laugh at myself. I've gotten to a place where I can, I can see my parts doing their thing. And I'm just like, oh my God, there you go. And I can laugh at myself in that way. I laugh at mistakes. Yeah, everything makes me laugh. It's pretty good. I feel pretty, pretty lucky in that way. Or what inspires you? Mm, you know, these days I've been thinking about this who's really inspiring me these days is youth is the youth who are out there who are like working towards climate change, desperately working towards climate change, towards combating climate change. I mean, and towards like creating a world where trying to preserve the world that that we are leaving for them and out there being loud and active in the streets about it. They are really inspiring me. I think kids doing activism across all things. I'm seeing them out there doing anti-racist work. I'm seeing them out, out there being their full queer selves, not giving a fuck about what people think coming out at like 13, 14 years old. 
you know, and I'm aware, like they are standing on, on the shoulders of people who have come before them, but I feel so proud and so inspired by just the freedom that they are embracing. I'm feeling super inspired by so many of the people that I'm getting to work with in the IFS community right now. There's this whole cohort of us of women of color who are coming up together and becoming trainers. And it's been a really huge, scary experience for a lot of us, but we are supporting each other in this way that feels incredibly inspirational. And I'm like, let me always have connections with these women and let us hold each other up forever. It's so good. That is so true. That is so true. I definitely feel blessed with the connection in the IFS community. I've not ever seen anything like it before. I mean, there is so much change happening in the community right now. And those of us who are kind of like on the front lines of this, we are banding together and supporting each other to say the hard and scary things and to get the pushback and handle that together. It is, it's been life-changing for me, truly. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say thank you so much. Um, That was my last question. Mm -hmm. But thank you so much for coming on my podcast, talking about all the things. I really appreciated it. It's been so much fun to talk with you. I can't can't say enough about how excited I am to be connected with you and have our growing friendship too. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.